Wallace Stevens is known as one of the most difficult of modern poets. Born in 1879, died in 1955. He early on wanted to be a writer and was advised by his father that he needed a career that would be able to support him. Write in your spare time, his father advised. And so Wallace Stevens went to law school, went to work for the insurance industry and became general counsel and vice president for the Hartford Accident and Indemnity Company, one of the largest insurance companies in the United States. He was truly a corporation executive. But fathering, following his father's counsel, he wrote poetry. Many people who read his poetry find it difficult, obscure, self-absorbed with philo philosophical problems. I think it is all of these things, and yet I think, and this is something critics and readers have seldom seen, his poetry is deeply emotional. It springs from his investigation of how he felt even more than of how he thought. Let me begin with a poem by Wallace Stevens, which very much explores a kind of complex relation between readers and reading, between the imagination which takes words and the imaginary world which comes into being as those words make the shapes of people and things and places. And yet I think you'll see when I read this poem that however complex its investigation of the relation between reader and text, between receiver and book, it's a poem about what we need when we read. The poem is called The House Was Quiet and the World Was Calm. And if we count the title, the word calm appears six times. The word quiet appears five times. The word night appears three times. The word summer appears three times. This is a poem about reading on a summer night and how everything is calm and quiet. The house was quiet and the world was calm. The reader became the book and summer night was like the conscious being of the book. The house was quiet, and the world was calm. The words were spoken as if there was no book, except that the reader leaned above the page, wanted to lean, wanted much, most to be the scholar to whom his book is true, to whom the summer night is like a perfection of thought. The house was quiet because it had to be. The quiet was part of the meaning, part of the mind, the access of perfection to the page. And the world was calm. The truth in a calm world, in which there is no other meaning, itself is calm. Itself is summer and night. Itself is the reader leaning late and reading there. 
That is a wonderfully quiet and calm book, poem, a poem about how and the poem become one. I think many of Stephen's poems, perhaps most of his poems, begin not so much with an investigation of intellectual aspects of things, although they often seem to do this, but begin with feeling. Consider this remarkable, wonderful poem called Tea at the Palace of Hoon. It's a kind of surreal title. It doesn't mean anything. It's an evening poem. The poem begins with the sunset. He tells us there's purple in the sky and it's a western day, which means that the sun is setting in the west. It is a time conventionally regarded as a lonely time. There's a you in this poem who calls it the loneliest air. After all, the evening is a time of endings. The day is completed, the light is going, the darkness is about to descend. But the poet is not lonely. The poet in this poem is, he says, no less was I myself. And he, he says he feels remarkable. He feels like there's an ointment. I think we're back in the world of Greece or perhaps the world of the Hebrew Bible. Thou anointest my head with oil. There's an ointment sprinkled in his beard. There are songs that he hears, hymns he calls them, beside his ears. There's even though he's perhaps in Hartford, Connecticut, there is a tide of an ocean sweeping through him. And he asks himself, where does this ointment come from? The ointment is a golden ointment at this point in the poem. The gold color of rich, precious metals associated with kings ties up with the purple and imperial color because it was the color of the emperors of Rome and the borders of their togas. Where does this ointment come from? And where are the songs, the hymns coming from? And, and what is this sea that seems to be sweeping through me? And as he asks those questions, he answers them. He says, everything royal and regal, everything holy and hymn-like, everything large and sweeping like the sea. Everything came from myself. His, his words are out of my mind and my ears made. I was myself, he says, the compass of that sea. And then the poem, which is only four, three line stanzas long, concludes. And I won't prepare you for the final stanza, it is one of the glorious affirmations in all of poetry. Here is Tea at the Palace of Hoon by Wallace Stevens. Not less because in purple I descended the western day through what you call the loneliest air, not less was I myself. What was the ointment sprinkled on my beard 
What were the hymns that buzzed beside my ears? What was the sea whose tide swept through me there? Out of my mind the golden ointment rained, and my ears made the blowing hymns they heard. I was myself the compass of that sea. I was the world in which I walked, and what I saw or heard or felt came not but from myself, and there I found myself more truly and more strange. Perhaps never has a poet made more clear the sense that our imaginations create the world in which we live. Perhaps never has a poet made more clear how there are moments when we feel good about ourselves and celebrate not only ourselves, but the whole world around us. I was the world in which I walked, and what I saw, or heard, or felt, came not but from myself, and there I found myself, more truly and more strange. We discover ourselves in the world of our own creating, in a world in which at sunset, when the sky is purple and the last golden rays of the sun come down, we find ourselves anointed in those colors. That's how we make sense of those colors, in which we hear a, a song of blessedness, a hymn around us, which is just the evening air, in which we feel waves of feeling sweep over us, which is the sea whose tide swept through me there. We become our world, and we feel, as this poem tells us, that that's the point of the poem. We, we are blessed in the world. We find that blessedness to be true. And then the astonishing, astonishing last two words of the poem, and there I found myself more truly and more strange. If we allow ourselves to feel and to imagine, we both find ourselves and find the strangeness of ourselves. Not that we are strangers to ourselves, but that we are new and mysterious and ever interesting to ourselves. Tea at the Palace of Hoon, for whatever it says about the imagination, and it is a great praise of the imagination, is a poem about feeling good at sunset, feeling glad to be alive and glad to be himself. One of, from Tea at the Palace of Hoon, we turn to one of Stephen's last poems. It has an off-putting title, not ideas about the thing, but the thing itself. And we might expect it to be enormously philosophical Indeed, many people read his late poems as meditations in philosophy and consider them recondite and perhaps even obtuse. But if we think about where the character in the poem is and what is happening, it's not a difficult poem. 
And in fact, it turns out to be a poem about feeling, much like Tea at the Palace of Hoon. Now, Tea at the Palace of Hoon was about the poet, the eye, descending into the evening through the sunset. Not ideas about the thing, but the thing itself is about a he, a stand-in for the poet, but I think it is very much the poet. A, a he, a character who tells us in the first line at the earliest ending of winter in March. So he's in winter, and winter is ending just as the night is ending, because it is a sunrise poem at daylight or before, he will tell us in the second stanza. And this, the person in the poem is, I think, lying in bed. And he hears a sound that seems, I quote the poem, like a sound in his mind. He knew he heard it. He thinks perhaps it's a bird's cry, and in fact, I think that's what it is. The sun was rising early, and the sun, with its panache, its plumed helmet, is almost coming up. Where did that sound come from that was just heard, This the person asks? And he answers himself, it, it was not from the vast ventriloquism of sleep's faded paper mache. That is it. I'm not asleep anymore. I heard a sound from somewhere. It was not fake, like the dream world, like ventriloquism, like paper mache, like what happens when we dream, when the imagination runs riot. He says, the sound as the dawning of the light was coming from outside, not from inside his mind, but from outside, that scrawny cry. And he's talking about that cheep that he heard from a bird. He says it was a chorister whose sea preceded the choir. It's like that first sound is the, is the note on a pitch pipe that someone plays when a choir is supposed to sing a magnificent chorus, a hymn. The sound is the giving of the key and or, or the tone, the middle C, and and the choir is going to chime in, and the choir here is the sun coming up, surrounded by its brightness, which seems like a choral by its choral rings. The sun is just lifting over the horizon. It is still far away, and yet something new has come. A new day. Light replacing darkness. It was like the poem ends a new knowledge of reality. So just as the last poem was a joyous poem as he revels in his imagination as day ends, this is a poem of reverence and adoration and joy as a new day begins and something outside himself wakens the character to the glory, to the choral glory, glory of the colossal sun and the world which it illumines. Here is not ideas about the thing, but the thing itself.
at the earliest ending of winter. In March, a scrawny cry from outside seemed like a sound in his mind. He knew that he heard it, a bird's cry, at daylight or before in the early March wind. The sun was rising at six, no longer a battered panache above snow. It would have been outside. It was not from the vast ventriloquism of sleep's faded papier-mâché. The sun was coming from outside. That scrawny cry, it was a chorister whose sea preceded the choir. It was part of the colossal sun, surrounded by its coral rings still far away. It was like a new knowledge of reality. Our first two poems were similar yet different. They both were celebrations, but one was a celebration of evening and the sense that as Walt Whitman said, I am large, I contain multitudes. The other was a celebration of mourning and the fact that I wake up to a world with birds and the sun, a world that is outside myself. Both are joyous, both are hymns. Let's look now at another pair of poems, which I think also have opposite kinds of situations. One is a winter poem and the other is a summer poem. But in this case, one deals with depression and despair and the other deals with something quite opposite. Both poems are have strange titles. One is called The Man Whose Pharynx Was Bad and the other is called The Well-Dressed Man with the Beard. And I don't think as with many paintings of the time, I don't think the titles have very much to do with what goes on in the poem. The man whose pharynx was bad. This is a winter poem. The poet doesn't care much. The time of year has grown indifferent, he said. Everything is the same. Summer, I recall, was a time of mildew and rot, and now the snow comes, and both are alike in the routine I know. I am, he complains, too dumbly in my being pent. I am pent. I am stuck in my existence without words, without being able to say anything. I am too dumbly in my being pent. And maybe I'm a bit... In the other sense of dumb, I'm a bit foolish and stupid. He talks about the wind that blows on both the summer solstice and the winter solstice, blowing on the houses in the metropolis. But when the wind blows, and for the romantic poets, the wind blowing was like the wind of inspiration. He says, now in a winter, this wind blows and it doesn't awaken me. It stirs no poet in his sleep. It tolls the grand ideas of the villages. The only thing we can hear has no intelligence as the wind blows and some bells and steeples ring. The malady of the quotidian, he says, a great description of much of life in 
our century, the sickness of everyday life. Quotidian is from the Latin quotidian, day, day, the day, today, the daily, the malady of everyday life. But it's wonderfully said, the malady of the quotidian. And, and then the poet says, you know, if I could only, in this winter world, if I could only get through it, if I could only say this is just how bad it is, this is how gray it is, this is how empty it is, if I could only put into words all this emptiness, if I could get to the bottom of my despair and my routineness and my emptiness, if I could get to the bottom of things, maybe I could write new kinds of poems. Poems of despair, but poems that would move us anyway. But, but the poem ends in despair. He says, well, well, I can't write new orations of the cold. I, I might, I'd like to, I might, I might, he says at the end, but I'm caught in the dailiness, the passage of winter time. So he says, but time would not relent. In this poem, he complains about the emptiness of winter. As a poet, he says, maybe the way to deal with his dumbness and his sickness, his malady is is to get through everything to the final grayness, to pursue through all its purples to the final slate. If I could only get to that, to the essence of winter, but I try, I try, but I can't, is the last line. One might, one might, but time will not relent. So here's this wonderful New England poem about winter and its discontents. The man whose pharynx was bad. The time of year has grown indifferent. Mildew of summer and the deepening snow are both alike in the routine, I know. I am too dumbly in my being pent. The winter attendant on the solstices blows on the shutters of the metropoles, stirring no poet in a sleep and tolls the grand ideas of the villages. The malady of the quotidian. Perhaps if winter once could penetrate through all its purples to the final slate, persisting bleakly in an icy haze, one might in turn become less diffident out of such mildew plucking neater mold and spouting new orations of the cold. One might, one might, but time will not relent. Trapped in time and routine in a winter world, Stevens seems unbearably depressed. But then we turn to the well-dressed man with a beard. It is... I would suggest to you a summer poem. It's sunny. And he thinks about crickets, about a cricket's horn, he'll think about the antenna of a cricket. And he thinks about sweet countryside. He, he mixes French and Italian. He, he, he calls it a douce campagna, a sweet countryside. He talks about honey and greenness. The well-dressed man with a beard 
begins with this line. After the final no, there comes a yes. And on that yes, the future world depends. The man whose pharynx was bad was mired in routine and dumbness. Malady of the quotidian in diffidence in a time that would not relent. This poem is the exact opposite. No matter how much negation there is, no matter how bad there is, things are, there is always an affirmation that follows. After the final no, there comes a yes, and on that yes, the future world depends. No was the night. Yes is this present sun. If the rejected things the things denied slid over the western cataract. Yet one, one only, one thing that was firm, even no greater than a cricket's horn, no more than the thought to be rehearsed all day, a speech of the self that must sustain itself on speech, one thing remaining infallible would be enough. That's the first half of the poem. After the no, there comes a yes. No was the night. Well, he says, yes, yes is this present sun. If we took all the things we said no to, all the rejected things, the things denied, if they all slid off the edge of the world, slid over the western cataract, if we had only one thing we could depend on, yet one, one only one thing that was firm, even, even if it were no greater than a cricket's horn, and he goes beyond that, not even the smallest thing, even if it were only some words. No more than a thought to be rehearsed all day, a speech of the self that must sustain itself on speech. He says, even if that's all we had, one thing remaining, infallible would be enough. Why would it be enough? Because after the final no, there comes a yes, and on that yes, the future world depends. And so the poem continues, and here is the second half. I'll pick up with Cricket's Horn. One, only one thing that was firm, even no greater than a Cricket's Horn, no more than a thought to be rehearsed all day, a speech of the self that must sustain itself on speech. One thing remaining, infallible, would be enough. Ah, Deus Campania of that thing. Ah, Deus Campania, honey in the heart, green in the body, out of a petty phrase, out of a thing believed, a thing affirmed. The form on the pillow humming while one sleeps, the aureole above the humming house. It can never be satisfied, the mind. Never. So he says one thing would be enough. It would be a sweet countryside, a douce campagna. It would be green like growing things. It would be sweet like honey in the heart. It could come out of just a small phrase, out of a petty phrase. But out of a thing we believe, we make something. We make a thing affirmed. And so he ends with the image of a head on a pillow, sleeping, and yet while it sleeps, humming 
making a music and and all above the house which hums is an oriole that's an old latin based word which means the halo which is around the head of a saint so everything becomes holy and wonderful if we have one thing even just speech even perhaps just a poem that we can believe in because and the conclusion of the poem is another of these wonderful endings that Stevens provides us it can never be satisfied the mind never the mind never rests in this poem with negation it always moves onward to affirmation it doesn't stay with destruction it always ends up in building and construction that's a very very different poem from the man whose pharynx was bad in which the mind is trapped dumbly in its routines in which the self is caught in the malady of the quotidian in which one tries to move onwards one might one might but time will not relent quite a difference this is the juncture at which I would like to present what I think is Wallace Stevens' largest agenda, what he's trying to do in his poems. It has something to do with the very different qualities of the man whose pharynx was bad and the well-dressed man with the beard. One about depression and negation and the other about affirmation, one about winter and the other about summer, one filled with entrapment and the other about always moving onward. I cited Walt Whitman before. Let me cite him again. He says, near the end of Song of Myself, do I contradict myself? Very well, then, I contradict myself. I am large. I contain multitudes. I think that's true of Wallace Stevens. More than is usually acknowledged. There is a largeness that contains the different kinds of feeling and different kinds of perception and different kinds of thinking that human beings are capable of. I'm going to read you a, a passage from a, a very long poem, one of the two or three longest poems he ever wrote, a poem called Notes Toward the Supreme Fiction. The poem's in three parts, and this is from part three, and each part has numbered sections, and this is from number six, and in it, a very strange character named Canon Aspirin, having, Canon Aspirin, having put away his nieces, he's put them to bed, and his sister's gone to sleep, and he goes to bed, and he comes to the edge of thought, the nothingness was a nakedness, a point beyond which fact could not progress as fact. And so he imagines himself, perhaps he's falling to sleep in this poem. He imagines himself uh, flying high into the sky, almost as if he's on angel's wings, trying to get perspective on the world of stars and the children lying in their bed, 
and he flies as far up as he can go and he comes again to the nothingness that is a nakedness. It's the point at which thinking must stop and some kind of comprehension that goes beyond thought must begin. It's, it's that point in which we're tired of thinking, and we'll have a poem about this in a moment, in which we're tired of thinking and we give up, and then maybe all of a sudden we say, it's not quite that difficult after all. So in this passage, straight to the utmost crown of night he flew, the nothingness was a nakedness, a point beyond which thought could not progress as thought. And here come these remarkable lines. He had to choose, but it was not a choice between excluding things. It was not a choice between, but of. He chose to include the things that in each other are included, the whole, the complicate, the amassing harmony. Now, I've said that often Stevens is about feeling and not about philosophy. These are awfully philosophical lines. He says that we have to choose what it is we will believe in, what he calls in many places the supreme fiction. This poem is, after all, called the notes to a supreme fiction. We have to choose what to believe in. But his response to that choice is to say choice is not what we think it is. It was not a choice between excluding things. That is, you don't choose this and leave out that. But it was not a choice between excluding things. It was not a choice between but of. So our choice is not what to leave out, but what to include. It was not a choice between, but of. He chose to include the things that in each other are included. The whole, the complicate, the amassing harmony. He chooses, as I think Stevens chooses, to include things that are included in each other. All opposites are included in one another. Plato taught us that centuries, millennia ago, that between good and bad, there may be differences, but you can't have good without bad to define it. You can't have truth without falsity. You can't have fat without thin. So Stevens always chooses the things that in each other are included, and that makes a whole something that is complicate, complicated, but it makes, as in music, a kind of harmony, different elements that all to come together in one gorgeous sound. He chose to include the things that in each other are included, the whole, the complicate, the amassing harmony. What Stevens does is chronicle his moods, chronicle the thoughts, that grow out of and are allied to his moods. He shows us one side and then another. What should be included in what we believe? That is the subject of modern poetry, Stevens tells us. He wrote a poem called Of Modern Poetry. And here I think he's not working so much from feelings, although I think feelings are 
but instead he's writing about how we find the feelings that really matter. Of modern poetry begins, the poem of the mind in the act of finding what will suffice. And that's the poem. The mind searches. It's in the act. The mind searches for what will suffice. What will be sufficient for me to live on? The poem ends up saying, it must be the finding of a satisfaction. And has a few more words after that. That is what will suffice. What will satisfy us? What will allow us to live? The modern poem inquires into that. And he says, Stevens, that this is very different from the older poem. Here's the introductory stanza. The poem of the mind in the act of finding what will suffice. It has not always had to find. The scene was set. It repeated what was in the script. So in the older days, according to Stevens, the poet could count on the script and the scene. There was religion, there was a stable society, there was a sense of what is conventionally believed. But then the poem goes on, then the theater was changed to something else. Its past was a souvenir. And so the poem continues, the modern poem, the modern poem has to be living to learn the speech of the place. It has to face the men of the time and to meet the women of the time. It has to think about war and it has to find what will suffice. In order to find what will suffice, Stevens tells us, he pursues that metaphor about in the past, the poem has not always had to find the scene was set. It repeated what was in the script. Now, he says, the poet has to create the script. It has to build a new set. It has to build, in fact, a, a new theater. It has to construct a new stage. It has to be on that stage and like an insatiable actor, slowly and with meditation, speak words that in the ear, in the delicatest ear of the mind, repeat exactly that which it wants to hear, at the sound of which an invisible audience listens, not to the play, but to itself, expressed in an emotion as of two people, as of two emotions becoming one. But that passage seems very complicated and difficult, and yet it's not as hard as it seems. He says that the modern poem has to construct a new stage. It has to be on that stage. So the, the modern poem is an actor on the stage of its own making. And like an actor who can't stop, like an insatiable actor, the modern poem slowly and with meditation, carefully and thinking about it, must speak words that in the ear, and this is the ear of the listener, you and I, in the ear, in the delicatest ear of the mind, not just the physical ear, but the ear that makes sense, that mind, that delicatest ear. It must speak words which repeat exactly that which it wants to hear. The poem must tell us what we need to hear. What we need to hear is what will suffice. And at the sound of that poem, which is 
in this extended metaphor, the sound of ourselves thinking, at the sound of which an invisible audience, that's you and me, listens not to the play, something outside itself, but to itself, expressed in an emotion as of two people, as of two emotions becoming one. One of my favorite lines in po of poetry, which I often repeat, is Walt Whitman in near the end of Song of Myself says, I do not say these things for a dollar or to fill up the time while I wait for a boat. It is you talking just as much as myself. I act as the tongue of you tied in your mouth in mine. It begins to be loosened. Whitman articulates what we think. Stevens is saying the same thing here. The modern poem says for us the things that we are thinking. And the actor, this modern poet, he's kind of making it up. He's like a, a jazz musician on a stage with a guitar, trying to figure out what the right notes are that will sound good to him and to us. The actor is, the poem continues, a metaphysician in the dark, twanging an instrument, twanging a wiry string that gives sounds passing through sudden rightnesses, wholly containing the mind below which it cannot descend, beyond which it has no will to rise. That's as good a description of poetry as I can think of. Poetry is sounds passing through sudden rightnesses. The sounds of the poem, the, the, the words, which after all just made up of of sounds, or if they're on paper, of black marks on a white page, those things are suddenly right. They speak to us of ourselves. Sounds passing through sudden rightnesses. And when the poem is right, when it speaks to us important and rememberable things, it wholly contains the mind. It comes out of the mind and it is as much as the mind is capable of and below which it cannot descend. The mind cannot get to a deeper truth than it can put into its best words, which are the poem, beyond which it has no will to rise. So delightful, so satisfying, so rich, so complex is the poem that we don't need anything else. It's like a perfect meal, like a wonderful opera, like a totally engrossing movie. We don't want or need anything else. We're glad to be where we are. So the poem is sounds passing through sudden rightnesses, wholly containing the mind below which it cannot descend, beyond which it has no will to rise. And then the final section of the poem is a short conclusion. It, in the modern poem, must be the finding of a satisfaction, very similar to what will suffice. It must be the finding of a satisfaction and may be of a man skating a woman dancing, a woman combing, the poem of the act of mind. What suffices? Words in their sudden rightnesses and also the daily actions that are part of our world. A man skating, a woman dancing, a woman combing. I always think in reading these lines of the pastels and paintings of Edgar Degas who recognized that when ballerinas relax off stage, or when women take a bath and soap their neck, 
or when other women iron, that in these gestures of everyday life, in our bodies as they work in the world, is the stuff of painting, of art, that what suffices are the things that make up our world for us, words and our daily actions. And that's what the modern poem sets out, doesn't know this when it starts, but sets out to find. Let me read the whole poem again of modern poetry. The poem of the mind in the act of finding what will suffice. It has not always had to find. The scene was set, it repeated what was in the script. Then the theater was changed to something else. Its past was a souvenir. It has to be living, to learn the speech of the place. It has to face the men of the time and to meet the women of the time. It has to think about war and it has to find what will suffice. It has to construct a new stage. It has to be on that stage and, like an insatiable actor, slowly and with meditation, speak words that in the ear, in the delicatest ear of the mind, repeat exactly that which it wants to hear, at the sound of which an invisible audience listens, not to the play, but to itself, expressed in an emotion as of two people, as of two emotions becoming one. The actor is a metaphysician in the dark, twanging an instrument, twanging a wiry string that gives sounds, passing through sudden rightnesses, wholly containing the mind, below which it cannot descend, beyond which it has no will to rise. It must be the finding of a satisfaction, and maybe of a man skating, a woman dancing, a woman combing, the poem of the act of mind. As I've said, there is a thought that Stevens is very difficult. And this poem we're going to look at now is, is in fact, a very difficult poem. And yet, in another way, it's, it's not difficult at all. And it's about simplicity. It's called Man Carrying Thing. And it commences with one of the most startling lines in all of modern poetry. The poem must resist the intelligence almost successfully. Right? He's telling us he can't understand poems. They, they, they resist the intelligence. No matter how much you think about them, you can't make them out quite almost successfully. I guess we can make out poems, but it's awfully terribly hard. The poem must resist the intelligence almost successfully. And then he gives us an extended illustration. He calls it an illustration. And he sees a, a brownish figure. This is called man carrying thing. And here the, that is, he, he's seeing a man carrying something. He's seen a brownish figure in a winter evening. And it's hard to say what that figure is. It resists identity, he says. that Whatever he's carrying, we can't make it out. And he says, you know, it's, it's a brown against a winter evening and it's dark and and then he goes off on a flight of things that is almost incomprehensible the poem must resist the intelligence almost successfully after all he he talks about uh about particles uncertain 
particles of the certain solid, the primary free from doubt. He's really saying it's like trying to make out a man at night carrying something and it's dark and worse, the snow is coming down and the night is going to last a long time and no matter how hard we look, we can't make it out. And then after all of that, and you'll be very confused in the middle of the poem, at the end he says, we must endure our thoughts all night until the bright obvious stands motionless in cold. If we work and work, it's like a long night. And then somehow, perhaps we go to sleep and we wake up and everything our intelligence could not make out is suddenly there as on a winter morning with the sun outside, bright, everything in front of us that was so hard to decipher in the stormy night, suddenly obvious, unmoving in the cold, wintry landscape. What I like about this poem, and it's a poem which I find almost impossible to understand when I'm in the middle, is that for all its philosophical tendencies, it tells me about things that I know, that sometimes I work very hard to understand something. I work and I work and it doesn't make sense and I work some more and I take the pieces apart and I try to make sense of how they go together and what's what and, and nothing fits. And then time passes and I come back to the poem or to the problem in my life or to the complex political situation, whatever it is that we come to, then the day comes when we wake up and say, oh, that's it. The bright obvious stands motionless in cold. So complicated as the poem is, it's about not just perception, but about a certain kind of feeling, the, the feeling in classical Greece of Eureka! I've got it when Archimedes discovered his famous principle when he sat in a bath and watched the bath water rise uh, and realized that uh, volume displaces something equal to itself or whatever he realized. It's that sense of a light going on or in this case the day rising and everything being brightly obvious. So here is this complicated poem which I am suggesting is maybe not so complicated after all. Man carrying thing. The poem must resist the intelligence almost successfully. Illustration. A broom figure in winter evening resists identity. The thing he carries resists the most necessitous sense. Accept them then as secondary, parts not quite perceived of the obvious whole, uncertain particles of the certain solid, the primary free from doubt, things floating like the first hundred flakes of snow, out of a storm we must endure all night, out of a storm of secondary things, a horror of thoughts that suddenly are real. We must endure our thoughts all night until the bright obvious stands motionless in cold. Let us really push ourselves and look at two more poems by Wallace Stevens. Again, a pair of what I would consider opposites. 
The first is called The Poems of Our Climate. It's in three parts. And if we understand the situation of the poem and pay attention to the words, what's going on will not be that difficult. The poet is looking at a bowl of carnations. They're pink and white, and they're in water in this porcelain bowl. And they represent the kind of complete simplicity that we so often desire. Getting away from everything except perfection. The flowers are perfect. They have a fragrant scent. The bowl has clear water in it. It's white. And that's all there is. He would, he thinks, like to fall into this world of absolute simple perfection. Here's section one. Clear water in a brilliant bowl, pink and white carnations. The light in the room more like a snowy air reflecting snow, a newly fallen snow at the end of winter when afternoons return. Pink and white carnations. One desires so much more than that. The day itself is simplified, a bowl of white, cold, a cold porcelain low and round with nothing more than the carnations there. In that perfect world, that thing before him, this bowl of carnations, there's one phrase that stands out. One desires so much more than that. Why does one desire so much more than that? I think the answer lies in the word that motivates that phrase. One desires so much more than that. If we pay attention to the word desire, we will see things that come up that are related to it in the second stanza. Because in the second stanza, he says, what if this bowl could take all our problems away from us? What if we could be as simple and pure as this bowl? Would we be satisfied? Here is stanza two. Say even that this complete simplicity stripped one of all one's torments, concealed the evilly compounded vital eye and made it fresh in a world of white, a world of clear water, brilliant edged. Still one would want more, one would need more, more than a world of white and snowy scents. So the allure is there, complete simplicity. Maybe it could strip one of all one's torments. I, I could get over feeling bad, depressed, uncertain, unhappy. Maybe in this bowl, if we could somehow slip into it, we could conceal the evilly compounded vital eye, the, the eye, the self that's made up of different things that are put together badly, the evilly compounded eye, but notice, I've skipped a word, the evilly compounded vital eye. The key to the self is that it is vital, it is alive, it desires that word from the first section. And therefore, in the second to last line, still one would want more, one would need more, more than a world of white and snowy sense. We live in a world where desire 
and want, wanting more and needing more, which are another way of saying desire, is connected to vitality, to being alive. And so he comes to the last stanza. The first line of it might be reminiscent of a poem we did earlier. It can never be satisfied, the mind never, here. There would still remain the never resting mind so that one would want to escape, come back to what had been so long composed. The imperfect is our paradise. Note that in this bitterness delight, since the imperfect is so hot in us, lies in flawed words and stubborn sounds. If we could be part of this world of the bowl of white and clear water and pink and white scented carnations, still, he says, there would still remain the never-resting mind, the mind that wants more, needs more, the vital mind, so that one would want to escape. And the escape is not to the bowl. We would want to escape from the bowl, come back to what had been so long composed. We want the world that has been made up for us so long, the world of desire and need, vitality and evil, even evil. That's the world we know. That's the world we love. Remarkable line. The imperfect is our paradise. We don't want a perfect world of fresh and snowy scents of white and clear water in a brilliant bowl. We want the imperfect, the world of of desire, of wanting more, needing more, vitality. Note that, he concludes, in this bitterness. We want our bitter world. Note that in this bitterness delight, since the imperfect is so hot in us, the imperfect is hot. It burns in us with desire. It is vitality, heat, as opposed to the coldness of the bowl. The imperfect is our paradise. Note that in this bitterness, delight. And I mentioned before, things are opposites to define each other. Can there be delight without bitterness? The poem suggests maybe not. Note that in this bitterness, delight, since the imperfect is so hot in us, lies in flawed words and stubborn sounds. Maybe the words that don't quite do what we want, that resist the intelligence almost successfully, maybe the sounds that are so hard to turn into perfection, maybe words and sounds, the making of poetry or of songs or of or of theater, or of talking to ourselves, or, or whatever. Maybe that gives us more satisfaction than perfect flowers in a perfect bowl that has nothing to do with torment. Maybe we like our torment because it is not only ours, but because only in a world of torment can delight be so wonderful only in a world where it's so difficult to say what we mean can we feel quite such joy in sounds passing through sudden rightnesses as he spoke of it in modern poetry. So Poems of Our Climate is about 
the joy here mixed with bitterness, mixed with imperfection, the joy we find in imperfection and in things that do not come together as wonderfully and fluidly and perfectly as those pink and white carnations in the brilliant bowl. And we end with a long poem, it's two pages long, called The Idea of Order at Key West. I often think that if we know what is happening in a poem, we've gone a long way towards knowing what the poem is about and what it's doing. So let me tell you what is happening in this poem. Wallace Stevens and a friend of his whose name is Ramon Fernandez, we only find out about him near the end of the poem, are out in the evening, I think, strolling along a boardwalk above the beach. They're at Key West, and they hear from the distance a woman singing. She's singing a song about the ocean. Not inappropriate, since she's singing at a nightclub near the ocean. And they hear her song about the ocean, and as they hear it, Stevens wonders, what is the relation between the song and the ocean? Does the ocean exist apart from the words that we say about it? I think what I'll do is uh, read the first half of the poem. What you'll want to notice is that the sea is itself. It is not a mask. And the singer is herself. She's singing about the sea, and yet her words do something to the sea. As she sings about the sea, the sea takes on the shape of her words. She sang beyond the genius of the sea. The water never formed a mind or a voice like a body, holy body, fluttering its empty sleeves, and yet its mimic motion made constant cry, caused constantly a cry that was not ours, although we understood in human of the veritable ocean. The sea was not a mask, no more was she. The song and water were not medleyed sound, even if what she sang was what she heard, since what she sang was uttered word by word. It may be that in all her phrases stirred the grinding water and the gasping wind, but it was she and not the sea we heard. For she was the maker of the song she sang. The ever-hooded, tragic-gestured sea was merely a place by which she walked to sing. Whose spirit is this, we said, because we knew it was the spirit that we sought and knew that we should ask this often as she sang. If it was only the dark voice of the sea that rose or even colored by many waves, if it was only the outer voice of sky and cloud of the sunken coral water walled, however clear it would have been deep air, the heaving speech of air, a summer sound repeated in a summer without end and sound alone. But it 
was more than that, more even than her voice and ours among the meaningless plungings of water and the wind, theatrical distances, bronze shadows heaped on high horizons, mountainous atmospheres of sky and sea. We stop there for a minute. The first stanza, the sea is there, water never formed to mind or voice like a body, holy body. It's just there, it's physical, fluttering its empty sea sleeves, the, the waves curling over and crashing on themselves. There's nothing in the middle of that wave. There are no surfers out there, so it's like empty sleeves. It seems to be speaking, and yet its mimic motion made constant cry, caused constantly a cry. It was not ours, although we understood inhuman of the veritable ocean. So the sea seems to speak something to us. But the sea is itself. It's not a mask. No more was she. And the song, her song and water were not medley sound. Even though she sings what she hears, since what she sang was uttered word by word, as the poem says. It may be that in all her phrases stirred, the grinding water and the gasping wind, she may be singing about the ocean, but it was she, her song, her poem. It was she and not the sea we heard, for she was the maker of the song she sang. The ever-hooded, again the waves folding over on themselves, tragic gestured sea was merely a place by which she walked to sing. That is, we hear her song, the product of the human imagination that transforms the world. And now we continue with the poem, passing over the next stanza that I've already read. It was her voice, the singers, it was her voice that made the sky acutest at its vanishing. She measured to the hour its solitude. She was the single artificer of the world in which she sang, and when she sang, the sea, whatever self it had, became the self that was her song, for she was the maker. Then we, as we beheld her striding there alone, knew that there never was a world for her except the one she sang and singing made. This stanza is about the transformation of the world that lies around us into our world, the way in which reality becomes human reality through human thought and especially through human words. She measured to the hour its solitude. She was the single artificer an artificer is someone who makes things, who crafts them. She was the single artificer of the world in which she sang, and when she sang, the sea, whatever self it had, became the self that was her song, for she was the maker. What we have in this poem is the human being in thinking about the world perceiving the world, putting the world into words, doing what God did in Genesis.
In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Here and when she sang the sea, whatever self it had became the self that was her song, for she was the maker. Samuel Taylor Coleridge at the start of the 19th century wrote in a very famous passage in his Biographia Literaria that the human imagination is similar to what he called the divine I am, that just as God created the world, the human imagination recreates the world in the very act of perception which he called the primary imagination. We see things, and as we see them, we shape them and give them meaning and give them sense. But then he said there was a secondary imagination in which what we all do is done consciously by the poet who shapes things into a new reality. So what we're dealing with in this poem, The Idea of Order at Key West, is this woman who is singing, shaping the world into a new thing. It's no longer the sea that was out there. It is now the sea of her making. And when she sang the sea, whatever self it had became the self that was her song, for she was the maker. Then we, this is the poet and his friend Ramon Fernandez, then we, as we beheld her striding there alone, knew that there never was a world for her except the one she sang and singing made or, as we might put it in less moving language, we each live in the world of our own perception and our own making and our own creating. Stevens turns to his friend, addresses him directly, and he says, you know, this is an interesting passage, he says, we listen to this woman singing, making sense out of the sea, reshaping the sea, and as we looked and we saw the lights of the town and the lights and the mass of the fishing boats who were anchored there kind of going back and forth through the night, didn't we kind of make sense of the world visually through these lights and colors, mastering the night and portioning out the sea, just as the singer made sense of the ocean by putting it into words, didn't we, as we looked at the night, make not just sense, but something beautiful and meaningful out of what we saw in this nighttime seascape. Here is this stanza. Ramon Fernandez, tell me if you know why, when the singing ended and we turned toward the town, tell why the glassy lights, the lights in the fishing boats at anchor there, as the night descended, tilting in the air, mastered the night and portioned out the sea, fixing in blazoned zones and fiery poles, arranging, deepening, enchanting night. So as they watched the lights swinging on the mass and saw the other lights had made a sense of it. Night was arranged and deepened and enchanted by their active seeing, by what I've said before Coleridge would call primary imagination. And then follows, I think, the most famous line Wallace Stephen ever wrote. Oh, 
Blessed rage for order, pale Ramon, the maker's rage to order words of the sea, words of the fragrant portals dimly starred and of ourselves and of our origins in ghostlier demarcations, keener sounds. Oh, he says, blessed rage for order. We desire order so much that we make it. The maker's rage, it's not just a calm desire, it's, it's a rage to order words of the sea, to make sense and shape of our experience, of what we see and hear, of what we feel. Oh, blessed rage for order, pale Ramon, the maker's rage to order words of the sea words of the fragrant portals, dimly starred. He's speaking about the things that he can see ahead of him, the doorways framed in bougainvillea or honeysuckle, the lights up in the sky and on the boats. We want to arrange the words of our senses, which are not alphabetical words, but the things we take in, and also the words of ourselves and of our origins. We want to make sense of ourselves and where we came from and who we are in ghostlier demarcations, keener sounds. We make sense of everything by turning it into words, into words which are ghostlier, more of the spirit and less physical but still mark out things, they demarcate things. We remember above in the poem, he talked about mastering the night and portioning out the sea, fixing in blazoned zones and fiery poles. Words do that. They may be ghostly, but they mark out the world. They do it through the abstractness of words and the keenness of sounds and of ourselves and of our origins in ghostlier demarcations keener sounds and he returns at the very end to the woman's song where the words of the sea the crashing of the waves have been made into a new and even more vital music in some ways this poem is similar to poems of our climate it too ends with a praise of poetry for what it does in the former poem it was delight since the imperfect lies so hot in us lies in flawed words and stubborn sounds here it is words of the fragrant portals and of ourselves and of our origins in ghostlier demarcations keener sounds but in the previous poem his love of poetry and words was because it was an alternative to and escape from our desire for perfection remember delight since the imperfect is so hot in us. He wants to get away from the world that makes so much sense of pink and white carnations. And in this poem, The Idea of Order of Key West, he says, we have such a need to take of the strange things around us, the crashing waves, the lights at night, the songs we hear, our questions about ourselves and our origins. We have such a need to make order. Oh, blessed rage for order, pale Ramon, the maker's rage, 
to order words of the sea. So although both poems praise the imagination, the use of words and poetry, one praises them as an escape from order and perfection. And the other says, no, it is the drive for order that motivates words. Which view is ultimately right? I don't think that we can say. There is no right after all. It was not a choice between excluding things. It was not a choice between but of. He chose to include the things that in each other are included, the whole, the complicate, the amassing harmony. Quite a poet, Wallace Stevens.